thank you, Chloe and Paisley, for sharing those things. <coughs> I don't know where my mic is. Greg, did you give me? It's fun to be grateful, and I, I think that there's a lot of... Uh, um, Katie showed her board. Uh, I've seen a lot of... Uh, a lot of journals, my app that I downloaded last year at this time and have been keeping track is loaded with things that, that I was grateful for all year. And um, it's been an amazing experience. Um, I think we should keep it up. You know, don't, don't let it just stop with, with um, just this year. Uh, keep it going and um, stay on it. I think it's uh, very beneficial. We did this piece of art on Wednesday night, and um, the, rubber, the rubber bands represent things that we're thankful for. So if you did not have an opportunity to do that, there is some extras right here that uh, if you didn't get a chance to throw some things on there uh, that you're thankful for, please grab a rubber band and um, stick it on there. Um, those are not weapons, um, even though they work really well for that. Um, Mr. Polly um, has uh, proved that they worked really well for that. I'm thankful for them. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> thankful for the weapon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, you had to defend yourself. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely had to defend yourself. We're in the middle of a, a series entitled Perfect Imperfection. And um, the point I want you to get from this series is that God's perfect will can get accomplished through an imperfect you. Through your imperfection, God's perfect will can get accomplished. Uh, We have a very well-known character that we're going to look at this morning. And uh, I want you to open your Bibles because um, I'm not going to uh, read individual verses. We're going to try to pull this story right out of Scripture. And um, as as I go, you can kind of follow along in the Scripture and um, find... Uh, David's story. David had a uh, an amazing reputation for most of his life, and um, God called him a man. Uh, he was referred to as a man after God's own heart. In fact, we find the lineage of Jesus. We find David in the lineage of Jesus. David was the great, 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 whatever, however many you want to go, grandfather. We meet David um, very early on. Samuel goes to uh, Jesse's ranch where God uh, sends him to find the next king. The Israelites obviously decided they wanted a king. God said, to, Do you, got, you, got, you got me, but they said, no, we, we want an earthly king, like a real king, like everybody else has. So Saul became king. He was a bonehead. Not what God had in mind at all, Um, but that's what the people wanted. So Samuel the prophet finds himself going through the line, uh, this lineup uh, of Jesse's sons. So you know Samuel, you know, finds this first oldest son, and and uh, he he thinks, oh yeah, this has got to be the one. He's tall and he's handsome and he's a manly man. God says, no, that's not him. The rest of the lineup gets through and all of the all of uh, Jesse's sons walk by and it's just none of them. Samuel says is there there any more? 
Oh, yeah, we have a, a runt brother that's out there watching the sheep. And Samuel says, well, bring him in. And David walks in, and there's this, this aura about David and this, ah. Yeah, this was the one. This little runt. David grows up, spends much of his life knowing that he is the next king. How would you like to have those expectations? How would you like to have that in your mind all throughout your life that, hey, I'm going to be the next king? My kids think my expectations are high. Wow, right? You're going to be the next king. Becomes a musician, becomes a poet. For Samuel chapter 17, he also gets recognized as a warrior. We find the story. David goes up against a heavyweight, right? Heavyweight champion of the world with a rock and a piece of rope. David takes him out. Yes. Gotta love it. Stories and songs are written by and about this amazing character. He becomes good friends with the king's son, Jonathan. So he's in and out of the, the palace constantly. And chapter 4, Saul, the king, sets out to kill David. Saul goes up into a cave to relieve himself. And you can take that however you want to take it. Um, but David, rather than killing him from further inside the cave, slices off a, a piece of his coat. The soldiers, the leading men, begin to realize that this David has skill. Yes, character, his integrity. This guy might be somebody we want to follow. So he does. David becomes king. Israel's success is amazing. Under King David's reign, he defeats armies and has financial success. He sits down and, and pens 73 Psalms. He writes Bible. He brings back the Ark of the Covenant. He buys property for the temple. He's called a man after God's own heart. The perfection. We see God using this man in an amazing way. He's a warrior, but he also strums and writes poetry. Chicks dig him. He's way cool. This guy is way cool. But if we could, if we could invite David up front, sit him down, have some conversation with him. David, what were you thinking? What was going through your head when this happened, when this happened, and when this happened? We're going to take three glimpses today and look at the imperfection that we see in David's life. And once again, the point of this whole, this whole series and this, this sermon today is that we want to realize that God can use even us. Little old me, God can use each and every one of us. Pride comes before a fall. Glimpse number one, we find the pride of success. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Y'all there, there's, there's a bunch of first and seconds in the Old Testament. Right? 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. Find 1st, 2nd Samuel and um, find 1st Samuel chapter 17. We're going to start reading in verse 25. 1st Samuel 17 Starting in verse 25. Before we read this, look to God in word of prayer. God, we thank you for um, bringing us here today, allowing us to experience you and allow us to experience this, this story 
And um, under, try, God help us to understand that even through David's imperfection, God, that you used him. You made a great man and got a lot accomplished through this individual. God, thank you for this encouragement. Help us to recognize this this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel 17, look at verse 25. It says, Now the Israelites have been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He, he comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Young David is sent down to his brothers to bring them some treats. And David sits around. He's talking with the, with the soldiers that are there fighting this Philistine army. And they're having a chat. So what's going to happen? <laughs> David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Didn't they just tell him? Verse 27, they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Verse 28, when Eliab, who's Eliab? David's oldest brother. He was the the strong, handsome well-built, manly man that Samuel said, no, 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 that's not the one. Verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You come down only to watch the battle. Conceited. Nobody told this part of the story when I was in Sunday school. You know how brothers know how to give each other a hard time? Siblings know how to give each other a hard time? Have you ever seen Sam and Sierra go back and forth? These two sisters, can they know how to get on each other's nerves, right? Siblings have a way of doing that. I think Eliab right here was, was irritated with David and he drove for a little bit of truth, but a little bit of, you know, I'm going to get this guy. I watch my kids do it all the time. It's usually about a specimen of the opposite sex that they harass each other about. I could ask any one of the older three and they would be able to harass the others with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. The name changes once in a while, but most of the time there's somebody that they can harass them with. Evidently, David, once anointed by Samuel the prophet, must have thought a little highly, a little too highly of himself because Eliab had some dirt on him. It says, I know how conceited you are. The brother knew it and was willing to bring it up to make a point. Next, I want you to see what this young man was interested in. I love God, but I really like girls and money. What teenage boy doesn't, right? He keeps asking about the loot he will receive. Sunday school's teacher didn't, didn't point this out either. He was into chicks and he was into big bucks. Guys, be honest with me right now. 
Two good-looking girls pull up to an intersection. One driving a 1974 Ford Pinto, olive green, with a lot of brown rust. The other girl pulls up in a bright red Porsche 911. Which girl gets a second look? I know. Girls don't get second looks, only your wife. But if you had to say, which one would get the second look? David asks more than once about the girls and about the money. Yes, he was also upset of how, how rude this guy was to God. But he asks several times about the king's daughter and about the money that's given to whoever defeats this giant. He's thinking, I could herd sheep for 30 years and maybe get by, but I could also go out there and knock off this giant and everything I've ever wanted could be mine right away. And oh yeah, I love God too. He's got some mixed up motivations, but God said, that's okay. I'm going to use this guy. God's saying, I've, I've wired all of you to be intrigued by the opposite sex and want power and prosperity. And there's nothing wrong with that if you put me before all of that other stuff. We find all throughout David's life that anytime he puts God before those other two, he does really well. But anytime he gets his priorities mixed up, he gets himself into a big mess. Gets out on the battlefield, he meets Goliath. Goliath starts making fun of him. You think I am a dog? You send out this little boy? David starts to swing his sling around and he shouts at the top of his lungs. I came out here to fight you for the women and for the money. No, that's not it. He gets his priorities straight when he's on the battlefield. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the Israelites whom you have defied. David takes out Goliath. Okay, boys and girls, be like David. <laughs> now look what he does. 1 Samuel 17, verse 54. Does your Bible have it in parentheses? Some translations, it has it in parentheses. You know those little half moon shaped things that on either side? My Bible has it in parentheses. It's like it was a side note. David took the Philistines' head to Jerusalem, but he stored the men's armor in his own tent. This guy's trophy hunting here. He's going to struggle with pride of success. I think he's got, gone a little too far. I think the ref would have thrown in the uh, excessive celebration flag. It's okay to have a few trophies here and there, but don't get started calling out parades for yourself, for your own honor, for your own applause. Be proud of what you've gotten accomplished, but don't ask for celebration of yourself. David didn't take the stuff to church. He didn't take it to the priest. He took it home. He put the stuff on the, on the mantle. It's going to come back to bite him. It's going to come back to bite him hard. Why is it so difficult to not live for the applause of people? This desire to have the applause of others has consequences. President Reagan went to Mexico City, and the story is told that he, he um, delivered his speech. And, of course, it was... Um, all speckled all throughout with the you know, honor and respect of, of their culture and their nation. And, and um, 
it was taken very, uh, there wasn't a lot of applause. It was sort of ho-hum and it wasn't, Reagan sat down and he was just kind of, he didn't feel real good about himself. But then the next guy got up and he, he started to, to speak. And of course, Reagan didn't understand him because he was, he was speaking in their native language. And as he spoke, the, the crowd began to cheer and began to holler and shout. And so Reagan began to clap with them. And as, as the man spoke, the crowd continued to applaud. And so Reagan would applaud with him. His advisor leaned over to Reagan and said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's just interpreting what you have just said. Hmm. Got to be careful about how we try to applaud ourselves. I don't think David blows it here. I don't think he, he completely falls short of what God wanted him to get accomplished. But I think this is foreshadow of things to come. The pride of success. Second glimpse we take. 1 Samuel 25. Call this a pride of position. Samuel dies. There's a time of mourning. It's a time for real leadership to shine. 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse 1. Are you with me? 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died and all Israel gathered for his funeral. They buried him in his house in Ramah. I don't know why you'd bury him in a house. It caught me weird, but I guess that's what they did. Then David moved down to the wilderness of Moan. There was a wealthy man from Moan who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean all his dealings. The scene is set. David, a bunch of rebel rousers bunch of guys he has 600 guys with him out in the wilderness they're still kind of on the run from from king saul his men with him were probably a lot like a biker gang probably something that we would see um you know a bunch of a bunch of crazies crews from town to town causing trouble here and there live primarily off the land they're young i want to follow this new young leader do some cool stuff they've been chased by the king but they always seem to be just one step ahead narrowly escape. They come across, come across this man. He's super wealthy, but he's a bonehead. He's crude. He's mean. Good old Nabal has one thing going for him. He's hooked up with his wife, Abigail. The Bible says she's both beautiful and intelligent. And I know all women are created beautiful. There are only three women in the Bible that gain this description. When the Bible says you're hot, you're hot, right? <laughs> You're hot. How did a woman like this get stuck with such a bonehead like Nabal? How did such a mean and nasty guy get such a beautiful, intelligent woman like Abigail? I get, I get this personally all the time. How did that bonehead get that beautiful girl? Verse 4, look at it. When David heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, he sent ten young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity <coughs> Excuse me. to you and your family and everything you own. I am told that it's sheep shearing time. Sheep shearing time was kind of like a lot like Thanksgiving and Christmas where everybody just kind of shares whatever they have with everybody else. It was a celebration time. It was sheep shearing time. 
Ask your own men and they will tell you. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped, skipped the last part of verse 7. While, while your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, near Carmel, we never harmed them and nothing was ever stole from them. Ask your own men and they will tell you. It is true. So would you be kind to us since we have come at this time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have in hand, hand with, uh, on hand with us and with your friend David. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name and then waited for a reply. Verse 10. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered at the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who, who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to this band of outlaws who, who come from who knows where? Now the servants are a little freaked out, so they turn around and they head back to the wilderness. Sheep shearing was a time of celebration. It was a time of abundance. It was a time of sharing. And so David's reaching out to this rich man and asking for a little provision. Hmm. David assumes Nabal would be like the rest of the world. Not in this case. Nabal sends back them back with, without anything. He calls David a runaway slave. Nabal's like, this, this right here, this is all mine. What's a man after God's own heart going to do when he's called a runaway slave? What's David do when he's called a runaway slave? The messengers get back to David and report all that they had heard from Nabal. What did, he, what did that guy call me? David said, put on your swords, boys. Gear up. We're going for a ride. Look at verse 12. So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply, as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David, and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet your, our master, and, and he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and they, they never suffered any harm from, we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time we were, they were there with us. In, in fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection for us and for the sheep. You need to do something. You need to know this and figure out what to do. For now, we are going to be in trouble. For our master and our, for our whole family, he's, he's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the servant goes running up to find beauty and brains and say, look, dude, we, we need your help, lady. Your husband's a bonehead, and look what he just did. He just made enemies with the nastiest warriors there are. We're toast if you don't do something. Is there anything you can do? Thank God for intelligent, beautiful women who can straighten us boneheads out once in a while. Verse 18, Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisin and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys, 19, verse 19, and said to her, her servants, go on ahead. I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband, Nabal, where she was going. Must have been a pretty good-sized pantry. That's a lot, right? 
200 loaves of bread. How many of you ladies have 200 loaves of bread laying around? Oh, they'd probably mold anyway. Full wineskins, five sheep that had been slaughtered. I've had a half a sheep, in, or a half a sheep, a half a pig in my freezer once. Half a, a, a cow in my freezer once. Never five. This guy had a pantry. Verse 20, look at it. As she was riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. David had just been saying, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks and wilderness and nothing he owned was, was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. <laughs> How should a man after God's own heart respond when he's called a name? What did that guy call me? I'm going to kill his whole town. I'm taking him out. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay attention to him. He's a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men you sent. And it goes on like this for about eight verses. This wealthy and beautiful woman gets off her donkey and bows in the dirt in front of David. Status-wise, she has him blown away. She has no business laying down in the dirt in front of David. David is just a crazy man out in the wilderness with a bunch of crazy guys. She's a very wealthy woman of noble a, a very noble uh, location and, and has everything uh, everything a, a person could want yet she gets off and she bows what happens to a man's ego when this sort of thing happens this beautiful woman bowing at his feet of David and calling him my lord about every other word in front of 400 of his men what happens to David's ego at this point does he deserve it? No. But she knows how to deal with boneheaded, egotistical men. She spent the first part of her life dealing with a guy who's Ill, ill-tempered, the Bible says, and, and egotistical. She didn't have to do this. She could have heard what the servant said and, and, and heard that the David and his men were coming to take revenge and just gathered her girlfriends and said, uh, Ladies, it's, uh, it's Black Friday. Let's go shopping. But she didn't. She took matters into her own hands. She steps in the face of danger for the sake of keeping peace and helping David keep his throne. She had nothing to lose, uh, except a, bone, uh, a boneheaded husband, probably. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I believe David probably wouldn't have... We, we may not see David's name again after this chapter in the Bible if he would have gone through with what he had planned. His life would have been a lot different. Look at verse 32. David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. Verse 34. 
For, for I swear by the Lord and God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. Then David accepted her present and told her, Return home in peace. I have heard what you said, and I will not kill your husband. Abigail goes home, waits till her drunk husband sobers up, and then she tells him the news of what she has done. He snaps, literally, has a stroke and doesn't move for the next 10 days, then dies. Cool ending, right? David gets out his pen and he starts in on the poetry. So, dear Abby, I hear you're single. Abigail becomes the next Mrs. David. First, David has pride of success. He's just killed the giant. Now, David has the pride of position. How dare you call the king a runaway slave? This expectation we have that we should be treated differently because of what we have made out of ourselves. It's pride of position. In the previous chapter, we saw David spare Saul's life. Why would he have such patience and humility with Saul, but such little with Nabal. David was able to handle Saul correctly, but wasn't able to offer that same attitude to someone on his level or maybe even a little below him. Why is that? I think often it's a true measure of character. Not how we treat our superiors, but how we treat those that are on our equal and maybe even those below us. It's totally the way it is. I think we have this scale in society. I know it's in my head. We have this idea of a, a who's who on the, on the scale. I know who's above me and I always know who's below me. I expect to be treated in a certain way based on this self-perceived scale. Isn't this true? Wait just a second. Do you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? fun to have privileges every now and then but the problem comes when we start to expect those privileges when we expect to be able to claim our rights when you don't get the mints on your pillow when someone takes your parking spot when someone sits in your spot at church when you're when you're not upgraded like you normally are when someone forgets to acknowledge your part when the credits roll and you don't see your name your nose gets a little out of joint There's a blindness that comes from pride. Self-confidence and self-esteem is great, but excessive self-confidence can cause major problems in a spiritual life. How do you tell the difference between two? How do you tell the difference between self-confidence and and good self-confidence and good self-esteem and bad? One commentator said, bad self-confidence is characterized by prayerlessness. We are so busy carrying out our plan, following our leadership, so confident that that our plan is going to work out. It's not that we're going against God. It's just that we don't have a sense that we, we need him. We are fine without his guidance. We think we can handle things without being bothered or bothering God. John 15 and verse 5. I don't think this one's on your notes or in the screen. Write it down. It says, I am the vine... 
and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But the last part of this verse is what sticks out to me. It says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We might get this in our heads, but are we really paying attention to it in our lives? Do we really understand that apart from God, I am nothing? I'm really not doing anything of real significance if it's without him. Pride of position is huge. Success and position oftentimes are the worst enemies of Christian lives. It will happen again in David's life. Jump over to 2 Samuel with me. Glimpse number three, we find the pride of accomplishments. When an older person gets so close to the end of his age or end of his life, how, how, do they, how do they find, how does he or she find out that they were successful? Look at what 60-year-old, 68-year-old David does. 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Look at verse 1. Once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he caused David to harm them by taking a census. Circle that word, he. Once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he caused David to harm them by taking a census. Who is he in this particular case? I believe this is Satan. It's a lowercase h. And over in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1, it lays it out very plainly that it was Satan who caused David to take the census. It wasn't God. Oftentimes the pronoun following Uh, The English person could explain it better. Oftentimes we would think this he here is talking about God, but it's not. It's talking about Satan. Go ahead and go count the people of Israel and Judah. Nah, bad idea. Look at verse 2. So the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Take a sense to the tribe of Israel from Dan to the north, Beersheba and south, so I may know how many people there are. Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God let you live to see a hundred times as many people as there are now. But why, my lord, the king, do you want to do this? Evidently, Joab knew that it was a sin and knew it was wrong for David to do this. But the king insisted that they take the census. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out and count the people of Israel. They spent nine months counting people, counting people in David's army. They came back and told David, 1.3 million 1.3 million men in your army. Wow. David's pretty popular. Woohoo! Then the guilt sets in. David realized he's just made a huge mistake. He's just made this, this whole nation all about him. So God gives him three choices. It says you can have three years of famine, three months of attack of your enemies, or three days of severe plague. I love this. I love the way God does these consequences thing. Three years of famine, three months of attack of your enemies, or three days of severe plague. And obviously David decides the plague because he feels like God would be in control of it. Guess how many people died in those three days of plague? 70,000 people. Wow. 
with leadership comes responsibility in the home, in the church, even in our families. Bad choices by leadership is going to have a negative effect on the rest. Verse 17, when David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These people are innocent as sheep. Why? What have, what have they done? Let your anger fall against me and against my family. David, David struggled the pride of accomplishment. It's accumulating wealth. It's checking out the portfolio. It's bond, it's securities, it's retirements. It's all about status. In other cultures, it looks stupid. In some cultures, it's beads. In some cultures, it's gourds hung around their necks. In some cases, it's, it's rings that they put around their, their ladies' necks. Have you seen those pictures in National Geographic? That's a status symbol. They stack those reeds and stretch out their necks. Well, they don't really stretch out their necks. It just pushes their shoulders down. But it makes them look like they're elegant. It looks stupid to us. Another tribe stretches out their earlobes. And the, the longer they're stretched, the more status they have. Stupid. It looks so dumb to us. But we do the same thing. For David, he wanted to know how many men he had. For us, maybe it's our 401k. Maybe it's our retirement fund. Maybe it's the amount of toys in the garage. In other cultures, it looks stupid. And why? Because it's so temporary. It's just silly. So let's apply what we've learned. Three things I want you to take home with you today. Number one, consider others better than yourselves. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interest, but take interest in others too. We could read the whole chapter because verse 5 goes into how Christ came, right? And took on the very form. Jump down to verse 12. It says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Verse 14. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Consider others better than yourselves. Look around. There's many people around this world that are putting up with harder work for less pay. Being treated worse than we could ever imagine. I don't care what culture, what time, what nation. We have it easy here. We have no reason to complain. When we think we deserve better than we have. Others don't need to treat me better because of my hard work. In fact, quite opposite. I need to treat others better than myself. Second, we need to live to serve, not to be served. Live to serve, not to be served. There's an argument on the road between the disciples. Two of them come to Jesus and say, we want to sit your right and your left. It's all about status, right? It's all about who's who. Jesus says, you're thinking like the world. You're trying to put pegs in a board. You're trying to climb this ladder. 
Mark 10, 43, Jesus says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your, you must be their servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, or not come to be served, but to serve. Once again, we get this in our head. We get it here. We, we hear it over and over and over again. But think about it. Everything your life is, is to be a servant to others. Be a husband to serve. A dad to serve. Be a wife to serve. Be a mom to serve. Be an employee to serve. Be a boss to serve. Be a student. Be a parent. Be a grandparent to serve. It sounds a little different when you put it in those terms, right? With some of those terms comes status, but not in our case. Be a driver on I-25 to serve. Be a grocery shopper to serve. Be a church member to serve. We here live to serve, not to be served. We don't think about every aspect of life. We have a tendency to claim our rights. And last but not least, following Jesus means following Jesus. Not just that you have a God to pray to when you're in trouble. Not just a God who blesses you constantly because you, cause, cause we deserve it. No. Following Christ means following Christ. It isn't status. It's a walk. In the dust of the Savior. Following in his sandal prints. Walking as Jesus walked. Loving as Jesus loved. Sacrificing as Jesus sacrificed. Luke 9.23 says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. You want to live like Jesus lived? If anyone had the right to, to, to the, in this life to claim his rights, if anyone had the right to, to own his position and make everyone serve him, to have his accomplishments acknowledged, it was Christ. But he didn't. He constantly said, follow me. He said it over and over and over again. Follow me. He didn't say believe in me or, or be blessed by me or pray to me when you're in a jam. He said, follow me. Being a follower of Jesus means following Jesus. I appreciate greatly the pieces of David's life that we can see that are written down for us. When it comes to pride, we all have blind spots. We all have spots where pride can get the best of us. My blind spots were revealed in this message. Pride of success, pride of position, and pride of accomplishments. Consider others better than yourselves. Live to serve, and in doing so, be a true follower of Jesus. May we seek to be like Christ, not just blessed by him. When Jesus says, follow me, it means we completely, humbly follow him. Our only answer should be, yes, Lord. 
should be, yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. I'll do exactly as you did. I will follow in your footsteps. I will do what you did when you were here. Because no, Lord, is an oxymoron. You can't say those two words together. It should only be, yes, Lord. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the story of David and for what amazing things you got accomplished in his life. God, we thank you for allowing us to see his imperfection, the pride that so easily got to him. God, help us to see that in our own lives. God, point it out to us. Make it, make it blaringly clear. Help us to hear your words when you say, follow me. And God, help us to jump up and get busy following you. God, help us to always answer with yes, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.